Hello and welcome to Earthcast, a platform for discussions about bridging the resource gap between people and planet. I am Olivia Taylor, or Olivia Earth on the socials, your host, and I will be interviewing a series of change makers, thinkers and disruptors, and asking them about their areas of expertise. Together, we will discover fresh perspectives and the most useful levers in society for change. The main question that we will explore is how are trade-offs made between people, planet and profit? More specifically, how do we solve wicked problems and make decisions at the margin? If you would like to hear more from Earthcast, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. Today on Earthcast, we have a really exciting guest whose groundbreaking socio-environmental practice helps to foster a reconnection between people and their natural environment. Welcome, Denisha Anand. Denisha is an intersectional environmentalist working in marginalized biodiversity spaces characterized by racialized neglect. She was recognized for her work by Mail and Guardian in 2019 as one of their 200 young South Africans. She holds a BSc Honours in Biodiversity and Conservation Biology and is currently completing a Master's degree in Multi-Species Ethnography and Plant Knowledge Systems at the University of the Western Cape. Denisha is an Environmental Restoration Project Manager and oversees the management of a 109-hectare wetland system in Cape Town called Princess Flay. She is also a progressive environmental advocate and educator for restoration and rehabilitation of neglected biodiversity areas associated with black indigenous people of color and, in particular, illegal evictions and abuse against displaced people. Denisha, you call yourself an intersectional environmentalist. What is intersectionality and why is it important to you and for the world? Hi, um, thanks for having me. So for me, intersectional environmentalism is where love and care for the environment and method of care um, includes and speaks to things like race, gender, class, uh, historical injustice, and seeks these unified and holistic approaches for care of the environment, of those bodies within the environment, um, and yeah, so it includes all bodies and everything that impacts these bodies. So it's human and not human. Um, and that's, that for me is intersectional, intersectional environmentalism and what I embody as an intersectional environmentalist and practitioner. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, given the introduction I gave, why do you think you have been so intellectually stimulated by indigenous plant intimacies and practices? And then further, are there any trade-offs that you have to make between your work as a conservation manager and your academic paradigm, i.e. are there any conflicting worldviews and why? So, okay, to start with the indigenous plant practices and intimacies and um, how I got there. So I come from a science background. I've got my BSc and BSc honours um, and the first breath of, of my career was, was within the science faculty working with the Agricultural Research Council. And, you know, in science, we were taught from an early age. I mean, I would, we could even go back to natural sciences in high school. And we were taught that these photosynthetic bodies were pivotal, you know, essential in sustaining life on this planet, um, you know, be it through the air, 
and their contribution to creating um, this composition of air for us, um, or through food, or through habitat, and making the space livable for us. And for me, that was always something, it seemed simple, but there was so much depth to it, and it was profound, and became more and more profound um, as I explored plants through my, my conservation degree, and then studying plant ecophysiology, plant chemistry, um, you know, as starting off my MSc and then leaving the MSc because I, I realized that being in the lab with these plants is not what I wanted. It's not speaking to me and it's not speaking to the practice that I want to embody. Um, and so this depth and this profoundness about these species that cared for us in this very deep, deep way um, started this, right? And I wanted to explore this level of care by plants for us as a species who were, they were able to hold space for us to be born into this world. And they nurtured, and they have this nurturing ability to hold us throughout our phases of evolution and this journey that we've taken as human beings um, throughout the Anthropocene and, you know, up until now. And... I just wanted to explore that, like take it to that level and go, it's more than just this hard constructed idea of photosynthetic bodies, um, exploding, producing oxygen, um, you know, allowing chordates to, uh, the chordata to, to explode and for us to then fall in line with that level of evolution. And I just thought we've got that narrative, but there's something more to it. And this is where my intersectional thinking came in because I'm saying we make it so hard and cold in science, but there's a level of care there. And indigenous people all over the world recognize this care of plants and us and plants and plants and us. And we see this in the way that they interact with plants as medicine, as food, through shelter, and that was something that spoke to me. And so I, I realized that there was also this movement around indigenous people and this revival in our country. And I started exploring that within myself. And so through the self-exploration of what it means to be indigenous as a mixed person with ancestors from all over the world and also from South Africa uh, or Africa or Southern Africa, um, I put all of this together and that's where this, this exploration and this intrigue, curiosity, and this just this deep desire to understand my own intimacy with plants uh, as this human body with ancestral knowledge. Um, and I, I've done this through my work in the Northern Cape, my work at Princess Flay, and just my own personal practice, um, yeah, in, in its entirety, in my entirety. Um, so that's that's where that's what that is, um, and that's what led me to my work with plant practice and intimacy. And it's it's still an ongoing thing. It's still something that I'm exploring, understanding every day, breaking down a lot of unlearning happening while going through this process. Um, and so the trade-offs with that kind of thinking and. It, at first, it comes across as conflicted thinking because you've got this cold, hard, structured, factual science, and then you've got the soft, feminist, feminine thinking around plants and their autonomy and their ability to give us, to nurture us, to support us. 
And these are not words you hear in science, but these are words that can be applied to them. And so for me, the trade-offs and like these spaces of conflict in my own work and versus my studying is the language. And so the language of humanities uh, is not necessarily, or environmental humanities is not necessarily well received by mainstream conservationists. Ideas of care, calling plants by the indigenous names or common names. I wouldn't say it's widely accepted by a predominantly um, white industry, which is conservation. So, so there's that, yeah. Denisha, that was so beautifully poetic. I actually got goosebumps. So I really, really appreciate <laughs> expressing it like that. But okay. I, I wanted to go back and just say one quick thing. You, you, you touched on the Anthropocene. And I've recently yes. heard it conceptualized by Moran Patel as the Capitalocene. And okay, yes. I thought that was a really interesting conception, um, particularly yes. our disconnect from nature. Um, I, I particularly enjoyed it when you spoke about, you know, the, the feminine intimacies and, and relationships with plants. Yes. But yes. to go further, as an academic, how would you like to see the tension managed between the echo chambers of educational institutions and tangible change making? i.e. how do we take all of this incredible theory and translate it into measurable outputs? So for me, again, it's looking at intersections and where we meet one another rather than, you know, looking at those meeting points as points of, of conflict, look at it as, as points of, of relating and centering our research around justice and change-making um, you know, be it as justice-centered method, storytelling, planting, cleaning our blue and green spaces, um, and then working towards a restorative justice. So for me, it's, it's we, we don't necessarily need to see ourselves as sitting in different corners, um, but if you want to sit in your corner, um, understand that your research practice, your own practice, can somehow overlap with someone else's and it doesn't have to become theirs, but at those meeting points, like with the gender, with race, with the historical injustice, with, um, it, you could be even be looking at poverty and how poverty impacts something that you're looking at, capitalism, neoliberalism, um, policy making. So any aspect of what you are centered in and finding that one space of commonality that allows you to relate to someone else's practice, someone else's change making. For me, that's what it's about. It's looking at the commonality. And yes, we can call it spaces of conflict where we knock heads, but that again is a meeting point and an opportunity to intersect and to center at that intersect, at that conflict point and look at this way forward where restorative justice, where holistic approaches to restorative justice is possible. So it's about having that kind of mentality of, of yeah, of, of intersectionality. That's, that's what I feel. Thank you for explaining that in, in such depth. You know, Denisha, as, as we've both experienced um, recently, there's an embarrassing amount of history of ignoring indigenous wisdom, particularly here yeah. in Cape Town with regards to fire management. Uh, and in Cape Town, we both recently experienced a fire uh, over the last two weeks, which raged for three days across Table Mountain 
and cause untold devastation to nature, people, academia, budgets. Um, so, Denisha, I wanted to know, could you please unpack some of the intersecting layers of injustice surrounding the blaze and dispel some of the misinformation circulating about the cause and the effects of the fire? Okay, so for me, it's looking at this fire. So it's one event, but it's so layered. Um, and I'll start with um, the environmental aspect of it, because that's what most of us have been speaking about. Um, and it's it's looking at the pine forests above UCT and in that entire area over there, um, sort of diversity and that entire landscape. It's something everyone knows. It's it's a landscape we all we all see when we think of UCT. And those pine forests, you know, they've been sitting there since the days of, you know, that wicked man Cecil John Jones. And those pine forests are invasive. Those are introduced species in conservation that alien species, which is a very hard term, but it's it's an introduced species, it's it's vicious. And the fuel load management um, associated with that species has not been taken on by uh, organizations like Sandbox or even UCT's management. I don't know what their environmental management plan looks like. And so this is what this investigation is looking at now, is were you prepared for this? Were these things that you looked at? So this pine, uh, this pine forest had these pine needles accumulating and this was creating this fuel load and pine needles burn. You know, they give off um, so much heat and they burn. And so now you've got this forest that's been sitting there for years and you've got this fuel load just waiting to burn. And then you look at the firebreaks because of maybe a firebreak could have helped um, with that fuel load management sitting over there, just waiting to explode. But then, you know, someone shared this image plotting out. It's a restoration mm -hmm. practitioner that I know. He shared this image of UCT and showed where the firebreaks are. And so two thirds of UCT was exposed to this fire and has always been exposed to fire. Um, and so for me, it's accountability and looking at UCT and looking at Sandpark and asking how could you blatantly ignore this? How could you put lives? How could you put history? How could you put this institution with all of its messiness, but also all of its um, progress and, and what it's been able to give to people? How could you put that at risk? There was, so there's accountability for me that, that we need to look at. Who is going to answer to this? And yeah, and Who's, who has been saying this for the longest time? Who has been saying, let's restore our landscapes for heritage, let's restore our landscapes for conservation, let's listen to people who practice restorative conservation. So, you know, who was ignoring those voices? Because those voices have been an echo for the longest time. You know, in the conservation community, we've been talking about this for the longest time. Not even, this is not even bringing in the indigenous community, uh, the local indigenous community, the heritage committees. It's, it's not even considering that. It's, it's even just looking at science and, and there that care masked as, as protocol is saying to you that you're putting everyone at risk by not taking care of this fuel load management and not making sure that there are fire breaks and not getting rid of these trees because who knows why? Is it some nostalgic <laughs> Rhodes legacy? Is it 
you know, who knows why. So, so that was the first thing. And then there's it's the, the city's policy and how the city has treated homelessness or displaced people in the city of Cape Town. So this is another, so I'm, I'm stopping at environmentalism now and I'm going to this and saying, we have thousands of people who are homeless, who have been evicted, who have been, um, have lost land, homes, um, products of the Group Areas Act and have never recovered since then, products of apartheid, of colonialism and have never recovered since then, be it because of alcoholism, be it because of drug abuse, be it because of running away from home for whatever reason. They are just displaced people everywhere. Um, and these people live in the mountains. They live anywhere that they can find a safe place where they're not going to be murdered, raped, um, attacked um, by criminals and by law enforcement and by city officials. So you have this space in the mountain where someone was living, uh, making a fire for themselves to keep warm, cook food, and somehow this fire, um, it's just a, 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 the wind caught it and it was taken. And so that combination of this person sitting in the bush, um, making a home in this bush, and we find out later that this is a Tanzanian national who had applied for study visa, who is waiting for a study permit and has been living in the mountain. Um, waiting for that. And that gives me chills because it's so um, difficult to process. And then to simply classify this person as an arsonist and um, to, to assume that what they had done was malicious and had the intent to do harm, for me, speaks to a level of just callousness and an extreme disconnect by governance. Um, there's no empathy and there's no willingness to actually understand how complex these issues are and how something like displaced people, um, the concept of displaced people, the reality, sorry, of displaced people and the environment and how those two intersect and will always intersect because open spaces provide refuge. And historically, they have always provided refuge. So why would people not go back into those spaces if they can't find formal housing? So it's also being logical about that. Um, and so that was, that was another thing that came up for me. And I, then there was the other aspect, which is not something I'm going to go into depth with, but it is something that's come up. It's, it's, looking at the centralizing of historical documents at UCT, at these archives, at the library. And I know comments were made about, uh, yeah, the university needs to start looking at decentralizing its archives, needs to start looking at um, accessibility to these archives. We can't just have them sitting in one place. We need to start looking at um, security, safety. Um, you know, why does UCT feel the need to, to hold on to, to all of this? And I don't have the answers. I'm not qualified to speak to that. Um, but I do have and always have had an issue with um, 
centralizing knowledge um, at ac academic institutions like that. I understand that there's a need, you know, to, to keep it safe um, and to store it in a way where we have this for years to come and can learn from it, be it colonial histories, be it um, decolonial histories. Um, but there's definitely something to unpack there. Um, and so for me, there's a rebuilding that can come from that. And there's massive loss, devastation. I would never be able to relate to those historians who have helped to build those archives and have put in the work, put in their hearts, put in, you know, the struggle was in their um, voices through painting, through art, through film, all of that was in there. I would never be able to, to understand or even imagine the loss and devastation, but me in my naivety and as an outsider, I'm saying there's an opportunity to rebuild and to look at um, ways of doing better moving forward when it comes to archiving and centralizing knowledge and accessibility to this. Because some people were saying, to hell with it, um, how much of that was accessible to us in the first place. And that sounds very, sounds very, you know, it's the, the, the short-tempered, um, short-sighted comment to make, but that's how some people feel. Um, so, so I think there's an opportunity to rebuild and to look at the decolonial ways of centering knowledge, um, which is important to me. And then there's the controversial and the conflicted UCT being on stolen land and that history of roads and the land being transferred. And yes, this institution that was then started um, and played a huge part in, in the struggle and um, grooming struggle fighters to go against the apartheid uh, government and regime, building knowledge uh, to fight apartheid. But again, this land and the story of this land being taken from indigenous people um, on such, a, such an important place in the city um, for indigenous people. I don't know the, the actual um, ritual implications of it. But I know that that land that UCT is on, Table Mountain, right, over, right there on the foothills, and the water spaces and the famous vegetation, all of that, that's all the ritual space. You know, the water, the felt, the mountain, that's ritual space. And so that land was, UCT was occupying that land. And there's a reclamation that comes with fire and a rebirth that comes with fire. Um, when we speak to our ancestral practice, when we look at ancestral practice, fire, rebirth, ash, um, and then burning and starting again. And Fainbos does that, you know, Fainbos needs to be burnt, needs to be completely, I won't say decimated, but it needs to burn. And then there's a rebirth. And then those seed beds start up again and new life. So, there's something to be said about it, um, but there is definitely, for me, someone who is rooted in, in Indigenous practice from all over. I'm not just rooted in the practice of, of year because my ancestors are from all over the world. And there's, like I said, there's a, com there's a common view that when there's a fire, there's a justice. There's a, when, there's the, when there's burning, there's a cleansing. 
you know, fire is never a bad thing when it comes to ancestral practice or indigenous practice. Um, as a common theme, it's, it's not a bad thing. Um, and so there's a healing that can come from that. To start again and to consider these, these narratives um, when speaking about this fire. And so it's not just this linear thing where people's lives were threatened. Yes, that's obviously one of the most important aspects of all of this. But once we, people are safe, so once people have been made safe, uh, the fire has been controlled, can we start having more complex conversations about this so that we can unpack it and prevent something like this uh, from happening again and from impacting us in this way again? So that's the fire for me. And there's been so much backlash. And again, I feel like the fire separated us because there were those who had the ability to think in complex ways and feel in complex ways because all of this was feeling for me. Um, and then there were those who went linear and said it was an arsonist who started the fire and should be held accountable and, and brought a book and charged. And so um, those opinions, you know, local government is centered around those opinions and, and those who side with local government too. And so this person was eventually locked up and the court um, said, no, this person is not going to be charged, I think for 15 years. Um, with arson. This has got nothing to do with arson. And so it showed, like, after doing the investigation, um, the case opened up all of this. This innocent person living in the mountain because of being homeless, because of applying for permits and not being able to study, he was hiding himself, you know, and was criminalized by a system that wasn't working, again, for foreign nationals, for African people. So... There's all of that that needs to be unpacked, and that's an entire <laughs> conversation on its own. Um, but that, for me, is, is how I would like to have conversations. Again, the intersections. I, I don't believe that it's as simple as saying, this fire started, chopped down the pine trees, it's a done. You know, we're done now, um, and that's how we solve this. No, I think that we, we have an opportunity to explore this. Uh, in its entirety, and that's the way I like to look at things. Denisha, I, well, I really, really appreciate such a deep and personal dive into this this topic and really unpacking some of the, you know, really painful discussions um, about trauma and, inter and intergenerational trauma, particularly in South Africa. Yes. I also really enjoy you talking about linear thinking. Um, you know, the, the, the problem with linear thinking is, is just it's limited and, you know, imagining sustainable futures for, for all people. It really doesn't yeah. leave any space for storytelling. You know, something I even try to do in my podcast, but I, I wanted to just say I, I can't wait to listen to what you just said again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> but <Thank> you. <laughs> Denisha, you know, if someone has the money or time, what are the most useful ways to capacitate racially marginalized individuals and communities? You know, and, and how can this be done authentically and not from a savior complex? You know, and, you know, for me particularly, a white savior complex. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's it's important to go into it, like you were saying, not wanting to be a savior, not wanting to 
to have a white savior complex um, and just assume because you have the resources that so you know simply putting the resources somewhere is enough um, or allocating the resources somewhere is enough um, and it may be but if you're really looking for depth if you're really looking at being part of sustainable change then um, it's looking at empowerment it's looking at paying black bodies you know people of color um, directly so that they can do the work um, it's funding organizations i know one organization that's looking at accessibility to ocean spaces um, and speaking about these intersections um, in a very white dominated space is the beach co-op and i love their work um, i love how they bring intersectionality into all of their work so gently um, and yet so confrontational at the same time. And so the Beach Co-op for me is one, one of the organizations that it's, it's headed by a person of color who happens to be a woman as well, a mom. And, you know, that's an organization that I feel looking at its mission looking at its vision as well look at missions and visions of organizations look at who who makes up that organization you know is it white-headed okay if it's white-headed where who's guiding the white head um who's guiding that mind and the care you know so it's looking at vision mission looking at who makes up the organization and um other people, practitioners, not even organizations that I believe should be funded. Um, Zayan Khan doing a lot of work with justice and seed, um, looking at seed politics, food politics even. Um, also funding um, people doing the emotional work in all of this. Um, Tony, um, a poet, and I will share, can I share these as well, like these names with you um, and where to find Absolutely. them? Absolutely, please do. I'd, I'd really appreciate that. And I'm sure my audience would too. Yeah, so, so, so not even just organizations, but people uh, doing the work. My, the organization I work for, um, Princess Play Forum, we are community-centered. So looking at uh, organizations who are extensions of the community and who started um, as the voice of the community, but like we started as the voice during protest and then established ourselves as the NGO. I wasn't there when that happened, but I came along afterwards. And so for me, it's if you really want to look at the heart and soul of the, the organization and where to put the money, it's looking at mission, vision, and looking at who makes up that organization, who is the board. Who are the executive members? Who are, who's the committee? Um, and who's heading it up, like I said? So that, that's important for me. And there are so many organizations, and I'll share some of their names um, with you so that you can also share them. Um, but it's making, you know, being critical at the same time and not being that safe, just throwing money at things. So there's some research that goes into, into to holistic care. I hear what you're, uh, I think, from what I an, an understand, it's a, an authentic embodying of, of really where yes. you come from and how you're implicated in the grand narrative of the world. I mean, if you know where you come yes. from, 
uh, I guess that's a pretty good starting point for for a journey of intersectionality. Um, yes, yes. I was one of those really naive people who said I was a, I think my, my Instagram bio for a while was intersectional environmentalist. And I cringe now, <laughs> I cringe now to think about that, but we learn, we, we unlearn, we relearn, we grow. So <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and Denisha, if, if people would like to, to follow more of your work, where, where can they find you? Do you, do you have a website? Do you have an Instagram? Um, so there's the Princess Flair website that I'll share with you. Um, a lot of my work documented at the Flay is on there. We also got a newsletter that goes out regularly, AGM, that you can attend virtually now. Um, and then there's my Instagram uh, account, uh, which is the Plantropologist. Um, it is a private account, but I, I do allow people to, I try to regulate it <laughs> as far as possible because the conversation is so controversial. Um, and then obviously there's my uh, my public account which is the vegetal evolutionist account and that's sharing more of the justice the plant practice and intimacies brilliant thank you so much for sharing that i i really appreciate it and so now last question denisha given your expertise what question should i have asked you um, so for me, the question would have been, um, so how has racialized neglect of green spaces impacted um, uh, how we do conservation? So that, that's one of the things that, you know, my practice is centered around. It's looking at some a place like Princess Flay, which has been directly um, neglected because this green space was in close proximity to brown bodies. Um, classified as colored bodies and even though the space had critically endangered vegetation endangered vegetation uh, was a conservation area 109 hectare conservation area it was neglected you know by the apartheid government and the post-apartheid gov uh, government and so for me it's again looking at how race impacts conservation and how we do conservation and how we can just say, oh, that site has been too heavily transformed. Let's scrap it and build a mall because that's what they were doing to Princess Flag. And so I want to be asked the question, like how does racism impact the way that we do conservation so that we can start looking at the neglect that we practice as conservationists, how we turn a blind eye to racism by saying that an area has been too heavily transformed and not asking the questions why and not saying, you know what, because of justice, because of restorative practice and what it actually means, we need to start allocating funds to that and actually make an effort to start restoration at some point in those areas and not just turn a blind eye and say, okay, well, Constantia's got this little pocket and we know that we can actually do restoration over there. Um, Boston's got this little pocket. Let's go and do some restoration over there because it seems worth it. Um, and it's it's having those difficult conversations and also checking our own practitioners, checking our you know um, elders in the community, our giants in the community, and and saying to them, "But this was during your time. Um, this happened during your time. How are you going to fix this now?" So that's a question I always want to be asked and always ready to answer because it speaks directly to the work that I'm doing. 
and to me as a justice-centered um, or person who centers my work around justice and conservation. Thank you for joining me today at Earthcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Let's chat next episode, where I will be asking more creatives and intellectual disruptors about making decisions at the margin. See you next time.